Good evening. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to our edition of Radio Evolve, our international uh, podcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy and very proud to have here with us uh, Professor Thomas de Sangatida. Uh, Professor Sangatida, welcome in the show. Thank you so much. If I just may say some words about you and your background, uh, uh, Professor Thomas de Sangatida is an author and contributing editor at Harper's Magazine. He holds a PhD in anthropology from Columbia University and teaches at the Dalton School and New York University. He's known, mostly known for his book, Mediated, that he already wrote several years ago about how, to, how media shapes your world and the way we live in. He's presently working on a new book called Postmodern Theory and Progressive Politics to the New Humanism about the historical significance of postmodernism. And he's also working on a new book toward, toward a new foundation of human rights. Thomas, if I may ask you, postmodernism uh, these days is somehow not in a good reputation anymore. It seems that the, the, the heydays of postmodernity are, are gone. There's something new dawning and there's a lot of critiques about also how many of the difficulties that we experience right now, uh, the troubles of our time, are related to postmodern theory and postmodern practice. And I would like to use uh, the chance to talk to you to get a deep understanding what what was postmodernity about? What is postmodern theory about? How did it come about? What did, what did he want to achieve? And what was, was his contribution to our development of our culture? And of course, then also, what are the shortcomings and where are we right now? But let me start first, when we talk about postmodernity, and I mean postmodernity also in the theoretical context, uh, uh, what are we talking about? What is this? A uh, quick little point of information first. The, the book about postmodern theory and progressive politics has been published. I'm not oh, I'm sorry. On that. It's, well, I want the audience to know that because I course. want to buy it. So it's, it's out there on a website for Paul Grave McMillan. Um, in answer to your que the, the, the general question, I, I said, I, I'd like to back up a little bit. Mm -hmm. And although my um, affiliations with, with Marxism, obviously, of the critical theory Frankfurt School kind of Marxism were, were complicated, uh, I still retain enough of the conviction that, that um, intellectuals don't just make this stuff up out of whole cloth. Uh, like everything else in our culture, uh, intellectual culture reflects the conditions of our social and economic lives and the technologies and, that um, shape them. So the quickest answer and the most accurate answer to the question, what is postmodernism in general, is it's what started to happen to our culture when we began to lead our lives through representations as much as or even more than uh, flesh and blood reality. Mm -hmm. So it is the replacement, as it were, of the old-fashioned, what the techies used to call meat world, M-E-A-T, replacement of the old-fashioned meat world by this one we're talking on, engaging with right now, you and I and the audience and so on. 
And so the effects of the transformation of our lives into representations um, is the critical answer to your question. Mm -hmm. And that's, I offer that to start with because that's adequate to account for things that went on in popular culture, in children's books, in advertising, you know, everywhere you look, that dynamic is at work, including in the uh, highest reaches of hard theoretical labor being done at, you know, uh, the best universities in Europe and the United States. So postmodern theory in the academy is the academic expression of this life as representation phenomenon that I'm pointing to. Mm. Why, why is this a uh, transition that uh, uh, obviously uh, is uh, a transition that everyone can recognize that we live more and more in a world of representation where we don't meet uh, uh, in person uh, flesh of that where we are, as you are saying right now, we are connected via computer, via the internet. Uh, we we Uh, we see the world through the eyes of cameras and, 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 and films. And it's more and more that what we call the virtual world seems to become the, the, the real world. Uh, that's right. That's the, 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 that's Thomas. That's the key thing here. The effects of this ooze out of the screen, go out of the, beyond the screen mm -hmm. and become part of people's lives. So that to a degree that I don't think our parents, for example, would even begin to understand, uh, people perform their lives uh, as opposed to just living them, whether they're on the screen or not. Mm -hmm. The intensity of the reflexivity, the intensity of the self-consciousness that this immediate environment induces in people Mm -hmm. means that if you sit down with your children to have a serious conversation about something or you, the moment comes when you and your wife are going to say, well, maybe this isn't working out or, you know, the deepest moments in our, our lives are infected um, by scripts, as it were, by uh, exemplars of those moments that we've uh, vicariously lived with uh, on screens. So mm -hmm. that we literally uh, perform uh, our, our lives in, you know, to a degree that my father and he just wouldn't have been, couldn't have imagined it. Mm. If I may just repeat what you said, because I think it really, it hits something in worth uh, to go into a little bit, the difference between performing a life versus just living it. Mm -hmm. uh, because it seems to, uh, yeah, I understand, but it's a completely different attitude to life You perform something in front of an audience. Yeah. In front of, it's something that has a kind of a reflective quality that's very different than just doing something, living For something. Sure. And it seems uh, that your reflection and also where postmodern theory comes about has to do with this reality that all of a sudden we are not just in a world, but we are. Uh, in a, in, a, in a world where we are performers mm -hmm. in front exactly. of each other. We also okay. each other's audience. Yeah, our, ourselves, in front yeah. of ourselves. Interesting, yeah. The most important, the most important yeah. critic is you. Uh, and you're the writer and you're the director and, and the star all at the same time. Um, but then, you know, just to begin to make the step towards 
postmodern theory, the way it's understood in the academy, it, it really helps to, to, to realize that, let's say, take a classic term, deconstruction, associated mm-hmm. with Jacques Derrida. Um, and to the degree that that's kind of a central theme in postmodern theory, essentially what he's doing is he's taking the established categories of Western metaphysics, mm-hmm. like, for example, subject, object, Mm-hmm. My inner life, the external world, male, female, mm-hmm. the, the what he calls the binaries mm-hmm. of of our uh, foundational semantics through which we've the West has lived since the Greeks. That's his picture of things. He gets it from Heidegger, uh, and what he's trying to do is to disrupt those neat categories by showing how they don't really reflect reality, they're representations of it. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's not an exaggeration to say that the sort of foundational insight of postmodernism, as opposed to the great modern theoreticians, including Adorno and his buddies, mm-hmm. uh, the great modern theoreticians thought of themselves as constructing theories of history, theories of society, theories of economics that were in one way or another true mm-hmm. and not just viable for the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the postmodernists are saying, no, you're not. You guys are kidding yourselves. You're just producing viable cultural artifacts that work for a while and then we'll roll over and die when the, the context changes. Mm-hmm. And that's how it is. And we have to learn to live with the fact that we can't get at what's real. Mm-hmm. We only, we have, we live in, we're doomed to live in these representations. Mm-hmm. The best we can do is become conscious of it mm-hmm. instead of living in them blindly the way we used to uh, before postmodern critique came along to wake us up or something like that. That's very broad, but that's the gist. How is this insight related to what you started with, uh, that we are not living our lives, but we are performing our lives? I, I, again, I, and I can't, this is a very much of a Frankfurt School insight. I just got this from Joanna, the whole Frankfurt School. The, 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 it, it, this is very much an insight from them. What happens in popular culture has its corresponding image, mm-hmm. much more complexly articulated, in high intellectual culture. There's no escape. Mm-hmm. From at any level of the mm-hmm. culture, from the conditions uh, of social existence. Mm-hmm. So it goes back to just as people are becoming aware. I mean, my favorite example is that Princess Diana's funeral. I mean, this is when I realized it. I watched those people in the streets of London performing their grief. Mm-hmm. And I watched their faces and I suddenly realized that I've been watching people perform, ordinary people in real circumstances, performing their real feelings mm-hmm. to an extent that uh, just wouldn't have been the case before there were media. So they are becoming aware of themselves as representations at the level of popular culture, just as Derrida and Barth and the rest of them were uh, articulating this same basic thought um, at the level of theory. Well, 
uh, let's pursue that uh, future of, of Lady Diana. I mean, it's already quite some time ago, but I, I, I remember that. And it, it, it was definitely uh, a, 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 a new, a, a something new happening in, a, in, exactly. a, in, in the case that all of a sudden the whole world uh, in that time still on TV screen nice. was uh, really deeply emotional affected by something that happened Uh, in Paris with an accident with uh, a lady there, but it was a whole global event that only was able to happen this way because we all were connected via live stream of, of, of the TV channels uh, to this reality. But you are saying that we were performing ourselves. Yeah, I, I, it's really important. Because I, I, felt, I, was, I remember I was with a group of people, uh, some of them were even English and uh, people were talking how this is an, a world, uh, an important world event because we were all united in grief yeah. in that. How does this relate to what you were saying? <laughs> uh, uh, well, this is going to sound a little cynical, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but, but um, the grief uh, that united us at that moment um, was not to be compared in my judgment, with the grief that one would feel uh, at the loss of a loved one in their own lives. And not that it wasn't genuine in some way, but it's a different, I, and I really mean this, it's, it's yeah. a different kind of emotional life mm -hmm. gets born under circumstances like the death of Diana, but we could go on to many, many other examples. It's the anger we feel towards Donald Trump. It gets, it gets performed. It, so there's no stopping this. I, I'm just saying it's as if a new kind of layer of the human personality has been cultivated mm -hmm. by this representational environment. That's what culture is. Agriculture. That's what culture does. Yeah. And uh, so That's the deal. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm just using the example yeah. first because it's really one of the early ones. Or, yeah, that's, that's, that's why it's important. And second, it really uh, highlights something also on a very direct level because you, the way you were describing it, uh, it's just true. Uh, the grief, uh, recalling my own experience, that uh, my friends and even myself we are part of, was not related to any life experience that we had someone, but with the, with the media experience yep. and also an expectation that this is a moment of grief. I oh, guess, absolutely. <laughs> and I guess that's what you mean with the performance. Because oh, right. Oh, you absolutely. Responding to, a, to an expectation that was created. Oh, for sure. The, the, the most revealing thing uh, that, to me that went on during this several days, this went on for days, remember? Mm-hmm. Uh, They were out in the streets. The queen had to come in from the country palace to, you know, honor their grief and all this stuff. <laughs> and one of the one of the network people was kind of looking at all this and saying, in a kind of mystified way, saying, "This is a people-driven story." That was their mm -hmm. and Tony Blair, if you remember, she was the people's princess. Mm -hmm. So what the Actors who were accustomed to commanding the limelight mm -hmm. under modern regimes of mass media, you know, mm -hmm. the Queen, Tony Blair, 
the prime minister, the reporters, they were suddenly, they had suddenly been displaced Mm -hmm. as the producers of this event. Mm -hmm. And they became sort of ancillary figures. And they were very unaccustomed to the idea that it was actually the people who were the central characters here. Mm And they'd been relegated to the role of, you know, yeah. cheerleaders on the sidelines where the audience used to be. Yeah. So it was very much what I call uh, in the book a, a, a virtual revolution, meaning ordinary people replaced celebrities. That's what was happening. And as you said, this is just one incident, uh, early one that happened, and you, yeah. you, you yourself brought it to the present and. Uh, saying that our outrage towards Trump is basically uh, of the same quality. Yep. That's, that's... If I may come back to a postmodern theory, what do they have to say about this? Or what is the insight uh, that we have to learn from postmodern theory about the quality that you were describing? Um, it, again, it's the, uh, it's the way in which no interpretive category Mm -hmm. that's available to you Mm -hmm. will actually fit the world as it is because this is a fundamentally this is a Nietzschean insight he's in Mm -hmm. if I I, there's a famous essay he wrote as a very young man called truth and lies in the non-moral sense if I had to pick one document that a person who wants to understand postmodern theory should read that's very accessible apart from my book it would be uh, that essay by Nietzsche and essentially he says that by their very nature concepts misrepresent what they represent and that's the end of it so all that remains to be done from an intellectual standpoint for theorists to do is to continuously deconstruct, disassemble political, the, uh, intellectual concepts as they begin to congeal into pretend realities mm-hmm. that people come to believe in when, in fact, um, concepts can't do that. Yeah. So that's the answer. I mean, that's the answer to your question. And this is also a point where a postmodern theory gets a lot of blame. Yeah, for sure. Postmodern theory basically destroyed our capacity to see truth. There you go. Uh, there is also, to, to get to a more recent point of view, I'm not sure if you know uh, the Russian uh, right-wing, uh, uh, extreme right-wing philosopher Alexander Dugin. Uh, I've read about him. Uh, who uh, himself is very literate in postmodern theory. Yeah. And uh, he, he, I listened to him in a BBC interview uh, about the Syria war, uh, basically claiming that the Russians don't bomb Syria. This is a Western truth. Uh, <laughs> our Russian truth is a different truth, and there yeah. is no truth, sure. as philosophy tells us. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, so, there's no... Sorry. Uh, in that sense, uh, and now we... Let's talk also, uh, bring in at least Trump, where basically Trump can say whatever lie he wants to say, he gets away with it. We seem to be in a reality that truth disappears. Yeah. And many people say the reason this is so is mm-hmm. the construction of 
uh, postmodern theory. Well, that's where the nonsense starts. But but the rest of what you said is absolutely accurate. And the reasons for this development on the right, for the mm-hmm. rise of autocratic populism, built on the capacity of mediated autocrats to construct alternative realities for their people to live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fundamental causes for that, I mean, it's ridiculous to say that Derrida and, you know, this did the, only an intellectual could believe that intellectuals have that much influence on anything. It's just mm-hmm. ridiculous. And Derrida's writing away, and as he said, then suddenly we've got Trump. Uh, it's just so bogus. They are the products of the same set of real forces in the real world. By the way, I hasten to, I'm saying all this about postmodernism. I'm not affiliating myself mm-hmm. with its attack on truth. think there's a way to get at truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another way. But that's, I want to make clear, I'm not, I'm interpreting it as I speak. Right? Mm-hmm. So um, there, that, that, that is just utter uh, nonsense by dogmatists on both the left and the right who just can't get let go of the traditional truths that they grew up with and that shape their politics. And they're just human beings in that way. They can't. So if I understand, if you understand you right, you're saying uh, 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 blaming postmodern theorists for this is nonsense because it's just blaming the messenger. It's blaming a a manifestation Mm -hmm. of a cultural condition that is itself the explanation for the rise of autocratic Mm -hmm. populism, not this silly sideline of theory that intellectuals have, you know, how many many people even read that stuff? You know, Mm -hmm. 10,000? I mean, it's nothing. These events, these, these developments is Hungary, Turkey, India, the United States, Merkel's gone. It's a, you know this this is huge. Jack Derrida is not responsible for all that. So, <laughs> uh, is there any relationship between uh, uh, the mediated autocratic developments that we experience right now mm-hmm. and the postmodern development? And if yeah. so, how would you see it? I would, I, my favorite way of characterizing it in settings where, you know, time is limited is that it's a grotesque, and I out capitalize the word grotesque, mm-hmm. it's a grotesque mirror image of what the postmoderns were celebrating when the um, transgressors of norms and normal categories were us in the 70s, in the, in the late 60s, in the 70s. So when we were out there shocking people by transgressing norms and disrupting the Senate and doing all the things that got done in the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s to outrage bourgeois morality, when we were doing that, causing outrage in that way, and we were exposing all these categories and convictions as bogus, and we thought it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. So now the right-wing people have caught on to this whole postmodern trope. Mm-hmm. They understand this trick. They know they're not telling, you know, they know that what they're, here's what it is. A Trump universe is a, is what you get when 
truth and fact really do become social constructions mm-hmm. and nothing else. Mm-hmm. So once they're, once these things are really just social constructions with no foundation in reality, you get this bacchanalia of nonsense that uh, mm-hmm. got on the right. Mm-hmm. So it's a parody in a way of what post- the postmodern left produced to begin with. So, I mean, we just said uh, some details about uh, what postmodern insights are about, and maybe also want to bring uh, some more in. But I also want to go into the direction that um, the way postmodern theory got uh, interpreted, also interpreted in different cultural contexts, because uh, most of postmodern theory uh, developed in, in a French cultural context. And yeah became prominent in an American academic cultural context and they are not the same. They're very different. Not at all. And if I understand a lot of misunderstanding, misrepresentation and also misuse uh, what was part of uh, what happened there. And maybe if you just can explain a little bit, what do you think, uh, what happened from this insight and how did it go the way it went? Well, the, uh, the, generation of French thinkers that that created, they never called it postmodern theory. They didn't talk about it that way. But that created what became postmodern theory when it got anglicized. Mm-hmm. Um, they understood from the beginning uh, that the shelf life of this idea, you know, was limited. I mean, uh, how, how long can you go on just repeating that um, whatever categories you're addressing aren't real. I mean, mm-hmm. after a while, it gets tired. Mm-hmm. And coincidentally, or perhaps not so coincidentally, at a certain moment in the early 70s, uh, a lot of these people, Kristeva and Barth, went to China, thinking they were cultural revolution in China was going to be... They, they, were, they, they felt like fools. They were fools. They were just... Uh, in other words, they made idiots of themselves, and some of them, Barth and Kristev are prominent examples, just decided that they were you know, enough already. This is getting ridiculous. And they quit. They just stopped it. Mm-hmm. Other, other, uh, other French theorists you know, sort of moved on in various ways. The major way they moved on was associated with what were called the new philosophers in France. Mm-hmm. And it was a return to humanism and ethics. And the instigating factor was nothing to do with theory. It was Solzhenitsyn's book, the Gulag Archipelago and the, and a number of other uh, intellectual um, refugees from the communist totalitarianism came to France and everybody went, Whoa, we need ethics. Mm-hmm. And so they turned, they made an eth- a turn to ethics and the French educational system being what it is compared to the American, you know, once the ship turns, the whole ship turns. So everything that we associate with postmodernism dropped off the curriculum uh, in France in a way that it couldn't possibly do in the United States where every university is more or less doing whatever it's doing. Mm -hmm. So So what happened in the United States? Because also in Germany, Postmodernism came on one hand first directly from France, but then it came as a second wave also from the U.S. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I, I what the again, I think the key figure there for people trying to understand this is probably Judith Butler, who because of her you know, orientation towards gender issues and gay issues and all of the identity politics issues that came to be the dominant expression of postmodernism in the United States. Mm-hmm. So postmodern theory was very rapidly displaced in importance. Mm-hmm in American university settings by what I'd call postmodern political practice, which essentially means identity politics. It means gays and lesbians and now trans. And I I, I can't keep track. I I try, but I I literally can't keep track of the various nuances of the identity categories in play. But uh, people are, uh, people began to conceive of themselves in terms of these identities and demand guess what to be represented in parliament no not in parliament on the public screen in the curriculum Mm -hmm. and the you know uh, to be to have their voices heard you know to be that's the way people talk donald the, the most common thing that's said about donald trump by people who love him is he talks like me Mm-hmm. I feel like he's saying what I've been feeling all these years and couldn't say. So suddenly you feel represented on the screen, mm-hmm. just like Diana's mourners. And it's, it's really that that uh, drives postmodern politics, whether it's in its right-wing form or its left-wing form. You know, the excitement that ripples through the media sphere when they decide to have a transgender superhero in the next in the next superhero movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's more interesting and more important to more people than any real medical economic development that could you know, be taking place in the mm-hmm. world of bricks and mortar. It stirs people up because it's them being represented. Yeah. But you say that it's also yeah. due to a, a, a shift on what you call postmodern philosophy to postmodern politics slash identity politics. That's in the United States, yeah, very much so. And, uh, I mean, one of the most prominent critics of postmodern theory and postmodern culture, some people call him uh, the most prominent public intellectual of our times, uh, Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, I mean, he really, uh, if if, if there's a devil, uh, it's it's postmodernity. Where do you think he hits... Hits the mark. What do you think? Well, well, well again, I, it is a. I looked into his work a little bit. Someone was going to. I can't remember what happened, but uh, first thing, you know, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, he's a cognitive psychologist, right? Mm-hmm. That's his okay. So it's really important in terms of what the reaction to postmodern theory was in the anglophone intellectual world to identify people who were in the sciences. Mm-hmm. or affiliated with the kind of philosophy for which we call the analytic tradition with the kind of philosophy that takes math and science as the ideal of Western rationality mm-hmm. and looks at the kind of thing that I've been saying about Nietzsche and the concepts don't represent the world. looks at that as an attack on scientific rationality mm-hmm. and all of its achievements. I mean, incredible achievements of science in the last 300 mm-hmm. years. 
how could anybody say that physics isn't about the real world, given what physics has managed to accomplish and mm-hmm. so on? So the root, I believe, of the intellectual misunderstanding that Peterson brings to his criticism has to do with what he thinks he's doing, which is defending scientific rationality against an onslaught of irrationality, which he associates with dangerous political developments. Um, but And uh, I, I, I think he's uh, mistaken, again, to go back to the it's just ludicrous to blame postmodern theory for these developments. They're just huge, objective, social, historical developments. He said, Jack Derrida is not responsible for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So I, that's, that, that's one thing. The other thing is... And if, I, if I may just jump in. Uh, yeah, all right. That's for the sake of the argument, because uh, uh, you say all the time, made the point, basically, that uh, the postmodern theorists are not to blame for this. Uh, if I may just turn around, if that is so, it seems to be a postmodern development and uh, it is a postmodern culture. Uh, who or what is to blame for this development then? And, well, now my, what's left of my Marx system comes, you know, rolling back. Okay. Um, the developments in the t- technological, what he was all concerned with, assembly lines and factories, manufacture, uh-huh. you know, the end of cottage industries, the rise of factories. That's what the, those were the transformations of technology that made capitalism possible and, it's, and so on. Mm-hmm. And we've had a huge technological revolution. Mm-hmm. And the effect of it, unlike the effect of the capitalist technological revolution, mm-hmm. which put um, the means of production in the hands of a few very wealthy people, mm-hmm. the means of production in the postmodern context are in the hands of everybody. Mm-hmm. Just your iPhone's all you need to make a world, right? You with me? So the whole, the whole, the whole thing shifted into a world of you know unlimited numbers of platforms producing unlimited numbers of shows, mm-hmm. all of them starring me, mm-hmm. and that's the condition that's responsible for the rise of postmodern theory within the academy, not mm-hmm. on Jack Derrida's little gloss on Heidegger. Mm-hmm. So Jordan, Jordan Peterson and people like him are panicked for good reason. Mm-hmm. But the solution isn't to defend, <clears throat> now I'm talking about my future work, the, the, the solution here is not to um, make these outrageous claims about the influence of a few French intellectuals. The solution is to um, think of a way to make the quest for truth credible yeah. again in and, the context of this culture. Yeah. Well, this is what I think is doable, but yeah. not by Jordan Peterson. <laughs> that, this is uh, very good because it really leads me also to the, uh, next uh, question I would like to ask you, which is about uh, so where to go from here? Because mm-hmm. you you were explaining it and also uh, kind of begging begging up with uh, insight from uh, old Marxist theory that it's our technological development that creates a, a real, reality here. 
but the, let's call it the iPhone reality where everyone becomes producer of the big me shows and there's this myriad of or this this tsunami of me shows yes right. <laughs> uh, uh, that we're in the midst of that won't go away at this point so um how do you see uh, that we as a culture can reestablish something like human rights or truth in, in this technological reality that is and will be uh, a reality that we are living in? Yeah. Well, I can't pretend to uh, have, have any kind of a practical answer to that question mm -hmm. because it would involve uh, amounts of investment organization and things that are just way beyond my scope. What I do hope to be able to do is to contribute a, uh, a new way of thinking about human beings, mm -hmm. uh, a new way of describing what kind of creatures we are. Mm -hmm. To go back to the, the original philosophical questions that uh, conservative defenders of the Western tradition pretend to care about but don't actually pay any attention to, Like, you know, what is it to be a human being? What is the good life? How should we, how should we live before we die? The classic questions. Mm -hmm. And I think the intellectual tools are available for us to do that in a way that will, uh, once it's articulated properly, uh, include critics of postmodernism as long as their minds aren't completely shut yet. And proponents of postmodernism who are, who realize, by the way, at some level that Donald Trump and autocratic populism is, is hooked up with what they've been doing in some ugly way they, that they're not responsible for. But they're, they're scared of that connection. Mm -hmm. And they want a solution, too. So there's a way to talk about truth. It's just it's a very obvious thing. I get it. What everybody should do, <laughs> and what I will do in the next book, is reread Husserl. Mm -hmm. reintroduce phenomenology into the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I, as it was practiced by Husserl and the early Heidegger and the later Wittgenstein, these are the mm -hmm. I'm calling on, they had ways of talking about the truth that didn't make it categorical and absolute, that, that, was, that you know, was able to acknowledge its fluidity, its flexibility, its uncertainties, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, without giving up on it entirely and celebrating the chaos of representation. So there's a, there's a path forward already laid out by the great phenomenologists of mm -hmm. the early 20th century and by Wittgenstein, who was a central figure in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you take all that, you take that, that philosophy and you return not to ancient Greece, where so many intellectuals mobbing the doors of ancient Greece looking for models of social, good social life, you return to the anthropological archive where if you want to talk about diversity, mm -hmm. you, know, you want to talk about differences between cultures, I mean, uh, it's stunning. It, it makes what we call diversity today look like nothing. If there's a theoretical way to show that there is, in fact, some ethical uniformity, some ethical universality mm -hmm. built in to the anthropological archive, no matter how different those cultures mm -hmm. all are, then we've got the beginning of a new way of talking about human universals. Mm -hmm.
That's that's interesting because I just w wanted to ask you how a phenological approach, as you are describing it, uh, with Husserl, Uli Heidegger, and and some degree also Wittgenstein, uh, how th those phenomenological approach can be uh, a response to this technological development that, we, that, that you were describing before. Uh, but I think what you just called an ethical universalism yes. seems to be something that uh, I, I see as a, as a touchstone. That's the idea. Uh, where... Uh, a, a kind of a new humanism can be uh, can that's be founded the, on. That's the idea, brother. Uh, can you tell me how? how I, I'll give you some little examples. Okay, this yes, can't. No, you can't. But as far as I know, and some anthropologist someone's probably going to say, "Oh no, among these people, such and so," which I'm already always ready for. Exceptions are fine. Mm -hmm. We are the species, after all, that produced human communities like the Shakers who aren't allowed to sexually reproduce. I mean, you know, the, the, there's no hard and fast limits here. Mm -hmm. But as far as I know, uh, there is no, never has been, a functional human community, a functional human culture, mm -hmm. anywhere in the archaeological archive. So we're talking about tens of thousands of historically unrelated human communities. And as far as I know, there's none in which If you're equally ranked and you happen to run into another member of your community when you're walking down a path somewhere mm -hmm. and your rank is equal, mm -hmm. if, the one, if one person greets the other person mm -hmm. and the other person does not return the greeting, that's mm -hmm. an insult. Mm -hmm. That's a universal. Mm -hmm. And it's profound. It involves the most fundamental human need, specifically human need, we have, namely to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good start. Then there's Levinas writing about the face. Just the most, he's a phenomenologist. He's not, a, a, he's not doing eth ethnology or animal behavior or Jordan Peterson cognitive psychology when he writes about the face. He's talking about people's faces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, come on. You see them on the subway. You just mm -hmm. see at a glance. If you're looking, somebody sighing, looking up, and you think, Jesus, mm -hmm. what's his story? Uh, it's fascinating, the example that you're bringing about uh, greeting back, because it's, it seems to be a, a trivial example. Of talking oh, about it seems to be such a small thing. Uh, But it, it, it touches something very fundamental, and, and oh, you, totally. you named it by acknowledging the other. And as I understand you, uh, uh, this can be the foundation of some uh, new universal humanism because this doesn't take away from the, 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 the pluralistic reality of our yeah, global system. That's it. You got it, Thomas. That's the whole point. So the reason that a phenomenologically founded philosophical anthropology, that's the actual term for mm -hmm. this, uh, could provide a new kind of universal found, you know, place we could go and look for what, what we have always had and always will have in common until they finally succeed in downloading our minds onto silicon plates if that happens and that's possible um 
but as long as we're embodied the way we're embodied, mm-hmm. uh, uh, these 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 uh, universals will obtain, and they are profoundly simple, mm-hmm. uh, and that's why they're universal. <laughs> I mean, they're just people. Just the light. I could go on. I mean, the right hand side of your left, you know, your eyes, your face. Mm-hmm. You turn your back on somebody, your back come on mm-hmm. and so on and it's just people people actually exist they be outside themselves with others through mm-hmm. things as simple as reciprocal acknowledgement mm-hmm. and the the fact that that's an ethical uh, principle is is dramatized by the fact that it's an insult Mm-hmm. If your dog comes rushing, all mammals need attention. I had someone said someone, mammals in general need attention. That's not the same thing as acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. If your dog comes rushing up to you and jumping all over you and blah, 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 and you're busy and you ignore your dog, the dog's not going to have hurt feelings. It wants attention. It's not demanding acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And so ethics emerges with consciousness itself mm-hmm. and if other species were to ever ever become conscious they'd want acknowledgement too now th- these are phenomenological foundational ph- phenomenological things about mm-hmm. the nature of consciousness which mm-hmm. i mean Husserl and Heide there's a huge storehouse of insights into what the existentialia of Dasein are in, mm-hmm. in Heidegger and Husserl that we can turn back to and take over to the anthropological archive and begin to piece together some account of ethical universality. I mean, obviously your own work seems to be an attempt to, to open up uh, this, this path in, in, yeah. in, in this kind of uh, post turmoil <coughs> that we are in right now. Yes. Uh, beside your own efforts, do you see, uh, uh, is there a development that are that that are that thinkers are going in this direction? Uh, I'm not <clears throat> I'm not certain about thinkers, mm-hmm. although I do I do I do believe that Richard Rorty mm-hmm. and some of the other American pragmatists, who were always closely affiliated with German phenomenology, by the way, going back to William James and his correspondence with Husserl mm-hmm. uh, uh, are working in a direction that would, that would, you know, converge with this more or less automatically. Uh, but where I do notice this mm-hmm. is, is in politics. I just, yesterday in the newspaper, I, there was a demonstration for transgender people wanting something. I can't remember what. And one of the signs said trans rights are human rights. Mm-hmm. And one of the rallying cries for the feminists was, you know, women's rights are human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the word human, you know, that that expression, if it's going to mean anything, mm-hmm. uh, has to be grounded in the ways that I'm suggesting. So I'm beginning to feel as if, this is what it boils down to, the conclusion of the book that you've got, the one that's been published, mm-hmm. is a a little anecdote about a, a meeting about sexual identity in which the kids involved in the meeting run through a list of 25 or 30 different 
sexual identities that they're trying to accommodate mm-hmm. in, their, in their lives. And at the very end of the list, the, the guy who's reciting it goes, stops doing gender identity and goes, questing, doubting, human. Mm. And when he says human to this assembled group of people who, if they had their French theory hats on, would know that humanism is supposed to be a bad thing. But they forgot all about that because they know what the kid meant. Mm-hmm. And they understood themselves to be claiming fundamentally, basically, mm-hmm. be respected as human beings, whatever their sexual orientation might be. And you don't have to scratch the surface very hard for all, all across the board with identity politics to discover that that's ultimately what the demand is. You know, I have a right. I should be able to get married. I'm hu- a human being. I should have what every other human being has and, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's operating as the as identity politics enters its baroque phase and we're faced with this grotesque parody of it on the right mm-hmm. uh i think there's implicit in the uh progressive styles of identity politics is this, an emerging humanism thomas allow me also as we are uh, already a little bit over our time okay. to use this anecdote at the end of the book also as uh the the end uh, point that you're making this conversation because I think it makes the point uh, and yeah. it, it makes it in, in a very non-theoretical and accessible way and I know we uh, we were only able to touch uh, this that in in this in this journey about the origins uh, the insights the deficiencies uh, of post postmodernity but I think uh, the landing point where we came to uh, Uh, that there is the capacity of what you call the universal uh, human ethics as a touch point to really make a next step here in our cultural development became very clear. And I just want to thank you very much for this conversation. You're, you're most welcome. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you everyone for, for listening and uh, good night uh, from here in Frankfurt, Germany.